you there. Thank you to both my board operators, and thanks for listening. Trump seized power by negating the votes of more than a million African Americans, Latinos, and Asian American voters. Talk about Russians all you want, but if we don't stop another purge, the 2018 midterm will be lost, along with democracy itself. This is Dennis Bernstein inviting you to a one-time-only screening of Greg Palace's new revised film, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy, The Case of the Stolen Election. This happens at Grand Lake Theater, 3200 Grand Avenue in Oakland, Wednesday evening, April 18th, 7 p.m. Greg Palast will be there with me for a discussion following this masterpiece of investigative journalism, a KPFA benefit with wheelchair access. Tickets are at the local Indian bookstores and brownpapertickets.com. See you April 18th at the Grand Lake Theater. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3.30. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover Open Book. And welcome to another edition of Cover to Cover Open Book. Uh, Frame to Frame is the name of my show. My name is Raina Cowan. And for the next half hour, we're going to be talking about film. Well, every year, I really look forward to the San Francisco International Film Festival. Uh, There's so many interesting screenings on many different topics that can uh, incite, excite, and um, and educate uh, many different people, uh, whatever your interest is in film. And so today I wanted to focus uh, on two things primarily. One is on films that are at uh, Berkeley Art Museum Pacific Film Archive. I always like to cover uh, the screenings that are happening there. They've been basically showing films that are connected to the film festival for the last 34 years. So we'll talk about some of those films. And uh, so one of the films I'm going to talk about today is a film that is showing at PFA, uh, which is entitled The Judge. And then another film that also caught my fancy. So I want to introduce both films and both filmmakers who will be joining us for the next half hour. The first film, The Judge, is a new film by Erica Cohen, and it looks at a Palestinian judge who is a woman. She works for a Sharia court, so a family court in Palestine, and she's constantly battling controversy over her position. Uh, The film offers a very sort of close reading and vision about her work and what she's trying to do as she's capturing uh, what's happening politically and culturally in Palestine while she's looking at family court issues. So with us to talk about that film is uh, the director, Erica Cohen, who also co-directed and produced In Football We Trust, which was a documentary about um, Pacific Islander men who went into the NFL, and that was at Sundance in 2015. So Erica, first off, welcome to KPFA. Thank you for having me. Uh, also joining me on the phone is the director of the film Trey Mason Dasan, uh, Denali Tiller, 
This is her first film, and she looks at these three boys and other people, other kids, who all share something in common. One of the fact is that their parents are in jail, and she follows their lives through boyhood and weaves the stories together and looks at the impact of being in jail, the fact that their parent is in jail and what it has on the child's life and their connections with other people and growing up. This is her first feature-length film, and it was based on a short film that she made while she was at RISD, the Rhode Island School of Design. So, uh, Denali, welcome to KPFA. Thank you so much. Uh, and I just want to say, as an aside, that Denali's film is part of the launch initiative that's part of San Francisco Film Festival. And uh, both of these films uh, are really interesting documentaries that look at really uh, key political issues, and they all focus on the judicial system. So I thought that they could kind of be thought about together. So, Erica, why don't we start with the film The Judge? How did you make contact with Judge Khalud al-Faqi and uh, and got her to agree to have you follow her around and watch her as she works. Well, it's actually interesting. I was on shooting hiatus with my last film, In Football We Trust, which you mentioned, and that was a, a long Cinema Verte project. Uh, it took place over many years. So during a time that uh, made sense, I had received a a Rotary Ambassadorial Scholarship in Israel-Palestine to continue some of my postgraduate research in Islamic feminism and to teach uh, filmmaking there. And one day, a dear friend and colleague invited me to attend a Sharia law reform meeting in Ramallah, which is kind of the headquarters of, of the West Bank, the capital. And I was welcomed into a large conference room filled with images of Yasser Arafat throughout the years, hanging in old picture frames and was seated at a table surrounded by men in tarbushes, which are the hats uh, that the judges and chefs wear. And Judge Khalud walked in and everyone stood to greet her. And I remember being immediately struck by her presence and her confidence and really her command of the room. And I wanted to know more. Who was this woman? You know, what was her story? Um, we were introduced at the end of the meeting, and I was so unbelievably moved by her charisma and her personal story, which, you know, after spending years as an attorney representing women who are survivors of domestic violence, she felt like she could best catalyze change and represent women in the Sharia courts where uh, familial cases were adjudicated. And I was so impressed with the fact that she had created this ripple effect throughout the rest of the Middle East, being the first woman judge in all of the religious courts in the Middle East. And um, she invited me into her courtroom, and I was literally pinching myself the day that I was sitting there in court listening to issues of, you know, marriage, divorce, um, you know, polygamy, inheritance, and feeling like this, you know, aside from the polygamy, maybe this is an issue that we, you know, or issues that come up in our courts all the time, and um, felt like this could really be an opportunity to examine Sharia and kind of our misinterpretation of Sharia law in the West and provide an opportunity for Khulud's story to be told on kind of a, a, a wide scale. And she thought that it could inspire women and girls around the world to pursue leadership roles in their communities, despite whatever cultural or traditional norms they might be facing. So together we embarked on this journey in 2012, and um, here we are today. So you are an outsider. You're from here. So what do you think the advantage was and the disadvantage for you in uh, filming uh, Judge Khalud 
uh, in a different culture? Well, I do speak Arabic enough to, to get by. And I think that I studied Islamic feminism and had a lot of familiarity with um, women in Islam, obviously, and kind of the history of women in leadership roles um, in uh, Islam. And when I spoke with Hulud about this, she felt like I would be really an incredible person to tell this story. I think that um, me being an outsider who had a lot of respect, obviously, for the language and speaking it and having um, a knowledge of, of Palestine and um, and Islam, they, the, the chief justice, the Qadi al-Qudam, who's kind of like the head chef of the West Bank, um, and oversees all the judicial courts really felt like, you know, there's there's not, first of all, being a woman, I don't think that they, they felt like this film was really going to go very far. But second of all, I don't think that they felt I would disrespect the story in any way. And um, within Palestine, there's a lot of, you know, concern about uh, journalists, local journalists finding out, like, issues that they don't want disclosed. So I feel like in that way, it actually benefited me to be um, an outsider. And so then I guess the the question would be that there are certain stories that you are deciding to tell and there's other stories that you aren't deciding to tell. So how did you come up with the narrative structure of what would be the key stories that would be useful for you to tell that you thought would most capture the experience of Judge Hulud in a way that we could understand? That's a really good question, Raina, and I think that that's something we we as filmmakers struggle with in the in the edit room all the time. And I and I think for me, I really wanted to capture this larger than life character who was so strong and so charismatic. And my number one goal was to transfer the way that I saw her in person onto the screen. And to really use some of the cases that she was dealing with at, at um, strategic times in the film to be able to illustrate her kind of overall personal narrative arc. I see. So maybe at this moment I can introduce Denali Tiller. We just heard from Erica Cohn, whose film The Judge is showing three times at the San Francisco International Film Festival, and I'll go through those later. And then also will be opening at the end of April. So Denali, your film Trey Mason Dasan, which is the name of the three boys that you followed, what were you trying to communicate about the court system and these kids that are different than what we've seen in other films about uh, the juvenile justice system or kids dealing with parents who are in uh, prison? Absolutely. So um, with Trey Mason Dasan, um, it, it really was taking a unique and often unheard perspective of the criminal justice system directly through these three boys. Um, and really directly through the child experience in general. So when we talk about the criminal justice system in America, um, there's a lot of conversation around those that are incarcerated. Um, and while there might be some conversation around their families, um, the children are often not represented. Um, and the children certainly are not often allowed to um, speak using their own voices and their own experiences to having a parent in prison. Um, so for me, it really was giving um, space for these kids to share their stories um, 
and share their lives and their experiences with us. Um, and within that, it's really, it's not just about having a parent in prison for them um, and their lives. So that is a big part of their experience um, and how they're impacted. The film kind of follows them through all of these experiences of growing up um, in school and um, with friends and with family um, and um, the different challenges um, in kind of coming of age and growing up um, while also dealing with this much larger uh, experience of having a parent in prison. Um, so for me, it was really changing the perspective and presenting a new and often unheard perspective around the criminal justice system in America. So one of the things that you did is that you went up to uh, the the jail, the prison, well, it's like the kid hour. for They have two hours on Saturdays. So what was it like actually being there? Not less just filming, but what was the atmosphere like for you seeing all these kids hanging out with their parents at that situation? You know, it's, it's one of the best days of the week, um, and the atmosphere there is just one of complete joy and um, coming together. These kids um, in Rhode Island have the opportunity every Saturday to see their parents um, in person, contact visitations where they can throw bowls around and color and play cards. And there's really, they have wrestling mats on the floor. Um, and there really aren't any limitations in terms of how the kids can interact with their parents. So this is in the men's, we, we were shooting mostly in the men's medium security prison. Um, and then the women's minimum security prison. Um, but this program is available in um, everywhere on that um, prison campus except for maximum security. And this is a really unique visitation program. It, um, programs like this don't exist in a lot of um, places around the country. Um, and so it's, it really becomes so important for these kids to have relationships with their parents and for their parents to have relationships with them. Um, it reduces recidivism. Um, often it kind of allows the parents time that they might not have on the outside to get to know their kids um, because of all the other pressures that they're dealing with. And so every Saturday it's just this kind of amazing, chaotic, giant room. There are paintings on the walls. Um, brightly colored, uh, and the kids are just so excited to see their parents, and, and it's really joyful. And through the film, we really tried to show that. So, I mean, even through when we were working on our, the music composition for the film, you know, often when you see films about prison, when they go into the prison, it's kind of this a sad moment, or this is where the challenge is really brought forth. And for us, that was kind of when the story really came together, and so the, the music is even more um, happy in those moments because the real challenge is the separation and them coming together on Saturdays kind of alleviates a lot of the burdens of that. Uh, that was uh, Denali Taylor, whose film Trey Mason and Desan is playing at the film festival. Erica, I want to go back to you that, you know, one of the things that well certainly was clear from Trey Mason, the son was the, the 
level of mental illness that the, just the impact of the um, the fact that these kids had to deal with their parents in prison really impacted their emotional functioning. And I'm wondering uh, what you noticed about uh, the women who came to the court of Judge collude and what was different for them than uh, women who happened to go to male judges in terms of sort of their emotional resilience and responsiveness? Yeah, I think that there are a lot of cultural and traditional um, barriers that prevent a woman from being able to disclose some of the most intimate details of her life with a man. And so Judge Hulud really changed things in that way where women could come in and speak to another woman about some of the domestic violence that she's experiencing or issues related to sex or her children. And um, that was really a game changer. Her presence in the courtroom alone um, really, really made women feel more comfortable about talking about that. And therefore, some of these issues became... um, uh, People were disclosing these issues, and so the rates suddenly are exponentially increasing um, because it's now, um, you know, more talked about openly. I see. So do you think that there was impact at all of the fact that you were filming her in terms of how other judges felt about Judge Hulud? (laughs) I think that there's definitely impact in the courtroom. Um, with me being there. Um, in terms of how other judges viewed Khulud, I think that there's also a mentality where, you know, why why is Judge Khulud being featured in a film? Why not me? Um, and uh, I think that that's definitely a, a response that's going on um, in, in Palestine right now, which I'm sure is very challenging, which I know is very challenging for Judge Khulud. In the courtroom itself, you know, this is a small, maybe 8 by 12 room, not at all like our courtrooms where Hulud is at uh, the front of a desk and then people sit around a table. And so I was in the corner of a room with a very small DSLR camera and a GoPro attached to the desk or in the corner of the room. And as people would come in, I would ask them, are they comfortable being filmed for the project? Um, would tell them a little bit about it. If they said no, I would ask if I could record their, their audio or film their hands and feet. Um, in some cases, people really wanted their stories told, but were um, very concerned about um, being identifiable by family and friends. And so we altered voices, changed names, um, used other kind of recreations to, to be able to tell their stories in the film, which I, I thought were crucial to understanding the landscape of the variety of cases that, that Judge Hulu sees. And of course, you know, I think our presence also probably stalled the court proceedings because uh, she sees somewhere between, you know, 40 and 60 cases a day. Uh, so it, it definitely, any, any, we tried to be as quick as possible in, in asking if uh, we could film and also, you know, not being able to change batteries or um, dealing with any, you know, tech issues, just being there fully observant in, in the corner. So one question that I have that uh, was unclear to me that, uh, you know, sort of culturally different is that when the women were talking about men, for example, who had abandoned them, there would be three witnesses who would come in and they would help come up with what the amount of uh, money that this woman would get. So who are these men and how does that work? 
Yeah, so in a case where, you know, the judge is deciding, you know, the amount of alimony uh, someone should receive, um, they bring in a variety of witnesses to help testify to the amount that um, could be realistic for the husband to give. So in, in the case in the film uh, that you're seeing, uh, referring to, three relatives came in to testify to what what the man's profession was and whether or not he could afford a certain monthly alimony. And how would this person, how would they know? Like, what is it based on that they make this decision? It's based on um, familiarity. So they, you know, knew his, his current position. They knew his whereabouts. They knew how much that he, how much he made. And if they didn't know, then they wouldn't have been um, able to answer that question truthfully because they take an oath um, and swear on the Quran that they um, will respond truthfully. And who who chooses the three? Is it is uh, are they related to the men, or and is it the the male uh, attorney, for example, who chooses them, or is it the woman? How does that happen? Yeah, the court subpoenas people. I see. Um, and I'm not sure the the in our proceedings on how how those witnesses are decided between the attorneys, um, but the court does actually subpoena both. Okay, we're speaking with Erica Cohn, whose film The Judge is showing at the film festival, and I'm going to go back to Denali Tiller, whose film Trey Mason Dasan, which is about the judicial, judicial system in the U.S. Uh, now, you wound up focusing, Denali, on um, the children, but there was always decisions being made by the court that we that are off screen, that we don't actually see. Uh, how did you feel like that the that these kids felt about the court and what was happening in terms of decisions about their parents or about um, about their lives? Yeah, it was a really conscious decision for us to keep this film really focused through the kids' perspective. Um, and so you really get a strong sense of exactly how they're dealing with their um, respective situations. Um, and I think that, you know, Part of that is being really sheltered from a lot of the decisions that are being made um, and a lot of um, the, de- the decisions that are affecting their parents and their, for their lives as well. And I think one scene that really does that is when, um, when Stephanie um, Dasan's mother's parole officer comes and visits the house. Um, at this point, Dasan doesn't know that um, she was in prison. She was released, but she had told him that she was at a special school for grown-ups. Um, and so she asks her parole officer, let's not say the J-A-I-L word. And um, and then we really kind of shift over and just focus on the son while they're having this conversation about her being on parole. And he's playing on his computer and watching Spider-Man videos. Um, and that really represents exactly kind of where he was at that time. Um, and he's only six um, at that time as well. So... Um, you know, even beyond what he doesn't know um, is kind of, it, with parents, it's really figuring out how to explain to your kids what's going on in a way that they can understand and that won't be too scary for them, um, but also being honest. Um, and so later in the film, she tells the son that she was actually in a prison um, 
and we go through that experience with them. Um, and so it's really, I mean, there are decisions and things that are happening that, again, um, and as was mentioned earlier, there's a lot you just have to leave out. Um, we had over 300 hours of footage that we had collected, and so, you know, narrowing that down to an hour and a half. But um, we really felt that we wanted to get as well-rounded of an experience as possible to these kids' lives. And um, through that, um, through that perspective, specifically, you know, you only get so much information because they are only getting so much information about their parents. Uh, right. So the film Trey Mason and Desan is directed by Denali Tiller. It has three screenings uh, this coming Sunday, April 8th at Dolby Cinema on Market Street at one thirty, Tuesday, April 10th at 8.30 at YBCA Screening Room, and Friday, April 13th at 3.30 at the Creativity Theater. And then The Judge, which is Erica Cohn's film, uh, is showing at Pacific Film Archive this Saturday at 3.30, and then also April 6th and April 13th in San Francisco. If you miss it as part of the film festival, it's going to open uh, nationally and opens in San Francisco at the Roxy on Friday, April 27th, and then in Berkeley at the Rialto Cinemas in Elmwood. So uh, different chances to see both of these films. So I want to thank both of you uh, for joining us, Denali Tiller from Trey Misson, Desan, and Erica Cohn for The Judge. And I want to now talk about some of the other films that I called. I love going through the program and coming up with films that I think are potentially really very interesting. Uh, that... Uh, you might be interested in as well. Uh, the f- the film festival opens this coming Thursday, April 5th, well, a week from Thursday, and Angels Wear White is the film that starts off the BAM PFA screenings, and it's a film from China, France, and it's by Vivian Ku, and it talks about the assault of two underage girls by a local official uh, in China, and then weaves together storylines that touch on labor issues, political corruption, and social injustice. And I think that that is going to be a really strong film. Uh, on Friday evening, the 6th, a film that's gotten a lot of conversation is entitled Boom for Real, The Late Teenage Years of Jean-Michel Basquiat. And uh, what Sarah Driver, the director, does something really interesting, which is focuses on the young Basquiat, and while he's tagging around the city and first making and selling his paintings, and uh, she interviews close friends and his lovers and his collaborators, and it's uh, been considered a really vibrant and interesting film about uh, his life, and that happens on April 6th. Another film that I'm really compelled by is a, a film like, you know, I really like these slow slow European films. It's not everybody's style, but this is a film from Serbia, France, and Qatar. It's called The Other Side of Everything by Mila Turjic, and it tells the story of his apartment. Mila's family apartment in Belgrade was divided and redistributed by the state government, and because his mother was politically active, she was spied on from the very rooms that used to be her own. And so now, years later, the mother talks about this whole experience and there's a whole thing about the resistance against Slobovan Milosevic and what happened during that time. It won the best documentary feature at um, the International Documentary 
feature um, film festival, and I think that would be very interesting. And then the next film uh, that I think is going to be really compelling is entitled Shirkers by Sandy Tan. Uh, Notice I'm focusing a lot on films by women, and it's very interesting. Sandy Tan, 25 years ago, with two friends, made a film in Singapore, and then the reels disappeared, and including not only the reels, but the mysterious man named Georges Cardona, who'd been acting as the project's mentor. And recently, the footage gets found. And so, uh, all of a sudden, what they wind up doing is sort of remaking the film because it doesn't have the sound connected to it anymore. So, uh, I think it's going to be really dynamic. Like, what happens if you've lived a part of your life and then you have to sort of come up with a new narrative to talk about it? So this is the film Shirkers. It won the directing award at Sundance for World Cinema Documentary, and I think that that also is going to be really interesting. So once again, these films play at BAM PFA, and you can purchase the tickets online, or you can go to their website, at their website, and... uh, you can also go free to the museum when you're the one who uh, is screening any of these films. So I want to thank you so much for joining me today for Frame to Frame. My name is Raina Cowan. I will be back next month talking more about film. Thanks so much for listening. Radioactive Resistance is a benefit for KPFA Radio and DACA support services. Featuring multi-Grammy Award winner Arturo O'Farrell and the Afro-Latin Jazz Orchestra, the Bobby Cespedes Band, and the Son Jarocho All-Stars, plus special guests. Saturday, May 12, 7.30 p.m. at the UC Theater, 2036 University Avenue in Berkeley. Arturo O'Farrell says, quote, We are thrilled to support the work of KPFA in his sacred commitment to truth and dialogue. Don't take KPFA's existence for granted. KPFA needs your support now more than ever. Support KPFA by attending Radioactive Resistance, featuring Arturo O'Farrell and the Afro-Latin Jazz Orchestra, the Bobby